All right. Hello. Good afternoon. Sorry for the delay. I it, it decided to, of course, install a bunch of updates as I was turning on here. So pretty much nine out of ten of our guests are like, yeah, we're so sorry. Zoom updates. Shocking. Positively shocking. Hey there, listeners. It's Nick Pierce, the new supervising producer for Slavic Connection. Today, I had the privilege of talking to Mark McNamee, the director of Europe at Frontier View, a leading market intelligence and advisory firm. He has been studying the region for nearly two decades now, and we had a wonderful conversation about Prigozhin, the future of the Russian regime, all the way to China-Russia relations. Hope you enjoy. Hello, Mark. Welcome to the Slavic Connection. Well, let's start maybe with just your uh, introduction to kind of Russia, Eastern Europe, Eurasia, how you got interested, gained some expertise in this region. Sure. Yeah. Nick, thank you. Nice to meet you and uh, glad to be on the podcast here today. Right. So try, I'll try to condense my answer from an hour to about two minutes as far as my background related to the region. So, yeah, to be perfectly honest, I think a lot of it started you know, at somewhat of an emotional level because of my family connection to the region. So my grandmother, my maternal grandmother was from Western Ukraine and my maternal grandfather from Southeastern Poland. And just, I think, you know, sort of that upbringing, I'm American raised, born and raised in Cleveland, as is my mother. But I think that sort of initial connection maybe sparked some interest to begin with. And then Strangely, in high school, and this is this is sort of more directly related, a teacher of mine, a priest at a Jesuit high school in Cleveland, was passionate about the region. And he actually taught in our world history course, a European history course, uh, on uh, Russian history and, and the region. Strangely, for high schools in Ohio, obviously. So that actually got me very interested in, and that's, I, I really believe in my sort of fascination with the region and my passion towards topic that developed from there. And then I university studied history, focused on Russia, mostly 20th century, Russia, Cold War history, end of the Cold War, etc. And then I was inspired to go live in Russia after university. I thought it'd maybe be six months, maybe nine months teaching English experience, living in St. Petersburg, fascinating city, of course. And then after that, just then started studying the language, applied to graduate school. I was fortunately accepted into a a very good graduate school and studied Russian studies and sort of the rest is history. So that's sort of the, tra- the trajectory, not at all planned, uh, but kind of each step along the way, it kind of made sense uh, that I moved to the succeeding step. And now looking back, you know, at 40 years old, the last 25 years, in hindsight, it all makes perfect sense, right? I, I saw that you've already talked about uh, Prigozhin and, and things like that. And I think that uh, talking about the, maybe his uprising and untimely demise and its, uh, its implications for global security, uh, global business, uh, these types of things, all the ripple effects across the region is, is something that I, I want to I wanna dive into. Sure. So uh, where, where to begin with this one? So I, I think the first thing, and based upon what 
you know, we hear from clients the, the biggest questions of what does this mean is essentially for, for Moscow, for political, political stability in Russia. Uh, at the end of the day, this was the mutiny in June was the biggest threat to Putin's regime in the over 20 years of being in power, despite the fact that this wasn't really a coup. This was a, a mutiny in reality. This was sort of a loyal mutiny by someone who wanted to not necessarily unseat Putin, but maybe, you know, try to remove some of the top commanders who Prigozhin and many others on the far right within Russia's military felt were not leading the war campaign in the in the way they, they wanted uh, and, and complaints about the incompetence of that leadership. So that's uh, sort of first and foremost, that this wasn't really a coup, but more of a mutiny, but nonetheless, uh, a clear threat to the stability of Putin's regime. And, and that's sort of the point, despite the fact that we've seen, of course, with with his execution more recently, um, this doesn't restore the authority that Putin enjoyed, say, prior to the mutiny or more long term prior to the war itself. But this does remove sort of the this mystique of Putin uh, being above and beyond the entire system and having this consolidated position above all others. Uh, this veil of invincibility, right, that he used to possess, that is permanently gone and irrever- uh, impossible to recover as a result of this. Obviously, in killing Prigozhin, this does provide more or less a, a temporary reassertion of his authority, but it, it is impossible to truly rectify, right, the long-term damage to Putin's power. So not really a demonstration of strength in killing Prigozhin, but I, I tend to believe this is actually just another sign of the general weakness of Putin's regime. Some Maybe the desperation and the fear that's felt in the Kremlin and the need to, to do this. At the end of the day, Prigozhin was Putin's creation. Uh, he was ultimately responsible for him. Prigozhin never would have made it to the levels that he did within the system without the direct support of Putin over the last 20, 25 years. And the point being that despite him being Putin's creation, Putin was actually unable to control him. And proof of that is that he feared Prigozhin's continued existence, then therefore felt the need to kill him. If he were in full control, he wouldn't have had to kill him. He could have just simply continued to control him, but he didn't feel that Putin clearly didn't feel that he he had that level of control over him. So this becomes problematic, though, more broadly, right? Like, what does this event sort of represent for the entire system is the fact that Putin is now increasingly isolating himself within the system, sort of, you know, isolating him now fr- himself now from the far right. When you add in the arrest of Igor Gurkin, right, the very vocal uh, critic of the war since its inception, calling Putin even a mediocre, uh, I believe called him a a mediocre coward or something to to that extent, which obviously is crossing a line too far under the regime, under its current status. So this is going to become problematic, though, because these are the hardliners that Putin has relied upon uh, for the last 20 plus years. These are the core of his support, particularly the last five to 10 years. And he's going to need them in the future. There's going to be another crisis, many pressures coming from the battlefield, coming from the economic situation and ruble weakness. And so what's the next crisis? When is it? How severe is it? What are the tools he's going to need to use? The factions will have to pay off in order to handle it. Uh, and, and the dynamic internally within the, the Putin regime is is evolving, right? So we can say that Putin is effectively ruling now now that Prigozhin has been killed in such a manner, 
by fear and, and sort of arbitrary violence, right? Which makes things very chaotic. We should expect a lot of erratic governance going forward, of course. So how does this all develop, right? Very unpredictable situation, but in every area, political, economic, military, financial, things will be continue to weaken and present future crises. This is sort of the takeaway, uh, as I see it, of uh, the Bergosian mutiny, and then even in his in his death, and what the outlook looks for, you know, the outlook then for for the Putin regime. Yeah. So, so when we talk about um, Prigozhin, I, I, it's very interesting to think of him as Putin's creation. I see an analogy here to maybe a, a Doctor Frankenstein and a Frankenstein's monster that that's kind of gone out of control. The the system of uh, uh, control over elites. Um, do you think that this could possibly signal in any way a return to the era of elite competition and indeed inter elite violence that we saw in the 1990s? That kind of gave rise to the Putin regime? Uh, is there any sign that that maybe the the elite cohesion is weakening in, in that respect? I think that is sort of the right analogy. Another historical analogy that's been brought up is the Smuta, right? The time of troubles. Similar, you could maybe say the 20th century Smuta, the 90s for Russia. Uh, and I think this is where we're moving to, uh, arbitrary violence. And, and again, a, another feature of Putin's system, which had served the regime and, and stability quite well for the previous 20 years was this sort of the policymaking, the dynamic that existed between Putin and the elites, this sort of competition where various elites and elite factions would more or less act on various policies, whether economic or financial or military, whatever they may be, and then hope that these policies, as they're enacted, gain Putin, the ultimate arbiter above the system, gain his favor in which case that's the path to promotion and greater status and wealth and influence, right? So that actually gives a considerable amount of autonomy within the system. So now this is kind of the point. Are things going to evolve now? Are people become more scared? Are people going to start acting actually maybe more autonomously, more ambitiously, knowing that there is so much elite competition going on and amid dwindling resources, right? There's less to pay off now, which I, I think is very clearly related to the increased repression of businesses, the uh, the expropriations that we've seen, the number of companies Danone, Carlsberg, but then you add to that even going after domestic businesses. Melnichenko, just last month, they need to, uh, this has a clear political end, right? They need to be confiscating more assets now that the pie is smaller and divvy them up amongst the right factions in order to maintain this stability going forward. But I think, you know, if you're looking at Putin, and so you mentioned the 90s, right? I think a, an appropriate analogy to consider here, and again, going to one of the more common conversations I have with clients and the questions that they ask is, well, how can Putin possibly be unseated, right? The system has more or less, been, he, the system he created has been intentionally made almost coup-proof, right, over, over the decades. So how can you unseat a person in this type of position. Well, for one thing, as mentioned, the nature of the system, actually, the fact that you have these elites competing sort of against each other with a certain level of autonomy and independence gives them some sort of latitude, right, to behave within the system and, and maybe take some initiatives on their own. And the point is, increasingly now, Putin, being in the information bubble that he has been in now for quite some time, could be somewhat sort of marginalized or sidelined from some of that decision making. And so going back to sort of the analogy here, I think this is this could be something akin to what we saw with Gorbachev in 1991. 
and 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 many the analogy in, exists in many ways here, right? So Gorbachev obviously faced his own coup in August of 1991, and that coup afterwards he was in fact blamed for the coup. He was the one who had promoted and given the positions and the status to all of the right wing hardliners over the preceding years who then turned on him and conducted the coup and created this threat to the regime and to the, to the Soviet state itself. So after the coup, Gorbachev actually faced the political repercussions of that. And then he got attacked by the reformist that he also had allowed to obviously elevate within the system as well. I think we're watching somewhat of a similar dynamic here where Gorbachev ended up sort of isolated by creations of his own and then blamed for that. Likewise with Putin, having elevated all these forces, some of whom are now more against him, not necessarily overtly at the moment, but he will be more or less blamed for having conducted this war, of course, because this was his war, proudly his war from the beginning, or special military operation, I should still say. So, uh, and then of course, you know, Prigozhin and, and some of these right-wing hardliners. So I think this is a pathway. Gorbachev, of course, was sort of pushed out in that fashion. Very different individuals in Gorbachev and Putin, so the analogy does break down somewhere. But it's not impossible that this does have some some sort of maybe a nonviolent outcome in unseating Putin over time, where he becomes maybe more or less sort of sidelined and marginalized in decision making and, and almost maybe seen as irrelevant and out of touch as these major more crises are going to come and these major decisions related to the war and to the economy have to be made. Talking about uh, elite power centers in the in Putin's Putin's regime, I think we have to talk about the Ministry of Defense, which was uh, it was has kind of been the target of you know people like uh, Gherkin and Prigozhin. I mean, that was his whole justification uh, was his uh, sort of personal enmity with Shoigu and Gerasimov. Uh, what do you think maybe is? the implications for the Ministry of Defense and that kind of Siloviki power center. What do you think that their their reaction to this is? Is it is it, okay, we've gotten rid of a threat or is it our faith in the system is shaken? I think a little of, of both. So for one thing, I think that they're likely underestimating the actual risk to their positions. And this has been uh, somewhat of a pattern, I would say over the last 10 to 15 years. There have been some surprises, of course, you need to go back to the, say, the Bolonia protests. But I mean, there's not many examples in such a, a, an authoritarian system, but some examples do exist where they maybe do underestimate the, the level of discontent beneath them. So I think that's maybe first and foremost, the biggest point, and obviously leading to potential risks down the road. But then secondly, the fact that they aren't interested in, in actually governing well or in conducting this war well, right? Or frankly, in, in my opinion, necessarily doing what's best for the Russian state over time. What they're interested in and why they've been elevated within the system is precisely because of their worldview and their value system, which is extraordinary ambition, opportunism, greed. How do I ensure my continued wealth, status, influence, power, position within this system going forward? just simply perpetuation of of my uh, position and my wealth uh, within the system. So they will do everything they can, of course, to ensure that. The problem is this means you are embarking on this continued and, and worsening pattern of rewarding incompetence and loyalty above all else. 
which means you're going to have incompetent people making doing what incompetent people do, which is make incompetent decisions in a time of pretty extreme political, economic, uh, military duress, which is only going to continue to accelerate going forward. I don't I don't have a particularly part positive outlook uh, for those uh, considering those underlying conditions for for the future of the regime. And 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 then specifically, you mentioned Ministry of Defense for these guys. I mean, you have to think someone like Shoigu has zero military background. Putin himself, effectively zero, aside from the KGB training, he had to do some courses, some you know, back in the 70s, uh, have no military background. And now they have a military catastrophe sitting on their hands. So how do you how do you manage this? Right. It brings to mind to return to historical analogies. I mean, you could have said the exact same thing when the Soviet Union was involved in in the war in Afghanistan and even back when the czarist regime was involved in World War One. These kind of crises of incompetence brought on by decaying systems that just can no longer sustain themselves seems to be a, a pretty big danger in Russian state history that seems to continually return or, or at least appears to. Right. And, and you mentioned World War One. another uh, relevant analogy. Maybe the primary reason that Tsar Nicholas II was deposed was because over the course of the war, he took on the ultimate ownership of the, of the war, making saying, I'm the one in, in charge. I will take on the authority and the direction of this war, and I'll be making future decisions away from the military, in fact. And so when the war went in a very, very poor direction for Russia over time, then he suffered, obviously, the consequences of having taken on the full control of the war. This war is undoubtedly Putin's, and this war is going increasingly in the wrong direction for Putin. And in my view, will go in much worse direction next year for the Russian state and for Putin then personally, uh, which is going to, I believe, spell sort of the same <laughs> same destiny for Putin as it did uh, over time, uh, as it did for Nicholas II. All wars end, and at this war's end, in the Russian context, we may see the introduction of over a million uh, demobilized veterans of the war, including Wagner Group uh, veterans that maybe have been forcibly integrated into the into the Russian army. And we know that uh, large groups of disaffected uh, veterans, especially when they have people, the, the Club of Angry Patriots and Gherkin, who've already kind of laid the ideological groundwork for blaming the regime. Do you think that that could have a, another destabilizing effect even after the war, even if it comes to a conclusion that isn't incredibly negative in the Russian regimes, Putin regimes' uh, eyes. Yeah. So, sort of looking at a post-war scenario, it's hard for me to imagine a situation where Russia is able to get out of this war and Putin is also able to remain in power. Uh, that's obviously not impossible, and these things are not equivalents. But I, I do tend to think the end of the war, right, which is not going to end favorably in Russia's and Russia's terms, no matter what. I mean, Russia had a certain goal and they could not achieve that goal. And it's become blatantly apparent to the international community, to all the elites within Russia, as well as to most of the Russian population as well. So this is really unwinnable at the end of the day. And now it's just a, bad, a matter of how bad it will be when Russia can get out of it and in under what terms, which I tend to think, again, they're not equivalents, but I do tend to think effectively the war can really only end, I believe, and, and what I've told clients since about April, May of last year, it really only ends with the end of one of the, the governments, Zelensky in Kiev or Putin in, in Moscow. Again, I tend to think it, it, we're closer and we're seeing more signs of vulnerability and, and the potential end of, of Putin's regime in Moscow. So then what does the, the future look like for Russia at that point? 
of course, extremely hard to predict in terms of timing, in terms of what the actual conditions and the terms are for some sort of ceasefire or peace treaty that we come to. But I think it's going to be what's going to be very problematic. And <laughs> let's let's stick with historical analogies here. I, I think what we could be looking at, again, going back to World War One, when we saw the removal of Tsar Nicholas II, largely because of the perceived loss and effectively at, at, by that point in the war, then the problem was the successive government, the Kerensky government, after the, you know, the February revolution, their major error was the fact that they continued the war, a very unpopular war that was unwinnable, and they continued to throw resources at this war. However, they didn't have, of course, the consolidated political power that the Tsar had over the system. Similarly, any future successor of Putin would never have the consolidated position that Putin currently possesses and has possessed and, and increasingly, you know, created over the course of 20 plus years in power. So they would never have that that ability to uh, that that consolidated position to do something that will become so increasingly unpopular, like continue the war post Putin situation, uh, which then I tend to think would be if assuming the next government would can would continue try to continue the war uh, would be their downfall, similar to Kerensky's government in 1917, with then this subsequent October Revolution. Uh, again, largely that October Revolution largely occurred because of the population and the elite dissatisfaction with Russia's continued involvement in World War One at the time. I pulled out my crystal ball and <laughs> tried to guess, you know, we're talking maybe years from now, but it's kind of the trajectory I, I think we could be moving towards in sort of this post-war, post-Putin post situation. Let's talk a bit about sanctions and, and maybe the effects those are having. We know that the ruble is is growing weaker despite pretty strenuous exercise of central bank authority to try and stop it. What do you think? Do you think that this is is it having the intended effect that America, especially the United States government especially wants or, or Western Europe? Is it having a deterrent effect? Is it is it doing that much damage to Russia's war fighting capabilities? So the same. Okay. So first of all, the sanctions are working, but no, they are not working as fast as the West would have wanted and hoped, right? And nor are they having the degree of impact that the that the West and obviously Ukraine would have planned for and hoped for as well. That said, they are working. Things have been much more delayed uh, in their response, but things are going to continue to get worse and worse for Russia, undoubtedly, as a result of the accumulating pressures going forward. That said, Russia has been saved almost exclusively by the fact that they gave, they were given basically a six-month lag time last year between the EU announcing oil sanctions and then the imposition of those actual sanctions and then, and then also the price cap. So they were able to actually successfully, to the astonishment of energy analysts, to reroute all of those volumes, which the majority of Russian oil volumes had been exported to the West, Europe primarily, and reroute them towards China and India almost exclusively. Successfully doing that is what saved, at least, at least, kept the economy afloat. So you only saw, according to Russian statistics, 2% decline last year. That's likely exaggerated, but nonetheless, a, a far more minimal decline than some of these projections of minus 10, minus 15, minus 20% last year that, that some had. So this is what did protect them and continues to protect them this year. So that's the, the biggest point. That said, oil prices also are quite elevated. So it's helping Russia uh, pretty significantly. But critically, on the positive side, the ruble depreciation that we've seen 
right? And we're talking around 40% or so decline since December of last year, the worst performing currency in 2023 from the by far the best performing currency in 2022. Uh, but we're going to see continued depreciation. Now, on the one hand, this protects government revenues, which is absolutely critical. This allows the military industrial complex to continue within Russia, that defense spending that's skyrocketing, it allows it to continue. But this creates major problems in terms of keeping inflation elevated. So we've seen inflation now picking up to quite high levels when you consider month-on-month terms over the last couple of months, which has then caused the central bank, as you mentioned, to intervene and try to stop the bleeding. Raising interest rates, they'll likely raise interest rates again. So towards the end of the year, be a bit higher than what they are currently and likely even continued hikes in the first half of next year. In addition to that, and probably the the more impactful, particularly in in the near term, uh, will be the, I tend to believe that we are going to see another mobilization uh, here, likely in the next month or so. It is very clear Russia is in dire need of more manpower, right? So they picked up about 300,000 people after last year's mobilization, almost one year ago today, tried to encourage voluntary investments since January of this year, which has not been particularly successful. They've been going after some migrant groups, uh, Central Asian migrants within Russia, and now they're, I believe, again, they will likely have to conduct an, another more formal mobilization soon. The point being the extreme pressure this is putting on the labor market, which in turn is driving up inflation even further. So you have that ruble depreciation, which is going to continue. It's just a matter of how fast and how deep. And then you add in these extreme real wage hikes, which are not, they will become increasingly unaffordable for businesses. So this is going to really ruin business investment. Uh, they can't find the labor they they need. Uh, you're going to have more flight abroad, of course, of people avoiding conscription, and then you're you're paying the exact same worker who did the exact same job yesterday, paying him considerably more to put out the exact same product. So no increases in productivity. So this is just inflationary pressure driving up prices on top of the increased price of imports because of the ruble depreciation, which is going to continue. That means interest rates can't necessarily come down particularly quickly. This, of course, deteriorates consumer lending, business lending, and and overall demand. And of course, these things are just going to continue. Month to month, just get a little bit worse, a little bit worse, a little bit worse. So all that accumulating pressure on top of, of course, in the war, the the pressure on the battlefield and Russia, uh, Ukraine continuing to make minimal gains, more pressure, more pressure. And then, of course, a a bigger spring offensive, as as we expect uh, in 2024. So all this sort of comprehensively putting considerable pressure on Putin's regime. When talking about the international kind of economic implications, we know the the BRICS just admitted uh, several new members. There's been talk since 2022 about de-dollarization, a switch maybe to local currencies or a, a competitor reserve currency. Are we seeing that have any effect on on their decision making or especially because a lot of these countries are at least uh, neutral in the Ukraine conflict, uh, which means that they don't agree with the Ukraine peace proposal, but but don't outwardly support the Russian position in most cases. What are you seeing there? So there's nothing really working. So, I mean, if you look at in general, sort of this global south initiative, this non-Western initiatives. Sure. There's obviously over the last 15 years, we've seen a little bit greater alignment, greater interest in opposing the West, trying to create, of course, you mentioned de-dollarization and and greater trade linkages amongst each other, which the trade linkages is is undoubtedly clear. So that has occurred. 
the de-dollarization efforts, I mean, there's been discussion about this, you know, going back to the global financial crisis, very little movement. Uh, in this past year, I believe global trade actually increased in dollar in use of U.S. dollars compared to prior year. There's no reason to think really through the end of this decade, I, I think we could say comfortably, that we're going to see a major shift away from the U.S. dollar, despite all these uh, attempts and all the interest of, of the non-Western world. So that, that's uh, that. And then we're seeing also, for example, Russia, you know, trading with India more. And this, of course, is mostly India buying Russia's oil. And Russia is just keeping their rupees within India uh, in the banking sector. There's not much to do with those rupees. They're not highly convertible. Uh, and Russia doesn't buy many Indian products. So very limited prospects for doing much outside of outside of the dollar, to be perfectly frank. So that relates to dollarization. Then you look at sort of the, at the political level. If there were true real interest in developing policies and, and a strategy looking ahead to trying to compete strongly against the West and create this sort of uh, non-Western world and, you know, this global South coming together, then China had every opportunity to assist Russia in this war much more robustly. And they very clearly have, to date at least, uh, have not done so because unlike Russia, which wants to effectively blow up and overturn the, the Western order, the Western-led order, I should say, but with no plan in place for what comes the day after. China doesn't necessarily want to do it. They want to revise it onto their own terms. China's been arguably the biggest beneficiary of this globalization period of the last 30, 35 years. So they, don't, they would like to revise it, but they don't want to overturn it the way Russia does. China's trade relationships with the Western world, with the EU and the United States, is several multiples of what it's trade, even with the increase in trade that China's seen with Russia the last couple of years is multiples compared to its trade relationship with, with Russia. So they're not going to necessarily endanger that. And, and that's why they haven't given that, that strong support. I think what's important to watch here, though, is if that policy maybe does evolve. I tend to think it, it won't, but this is something looking ahead to be watching out for. We saw, of course, North Korea with Kim Jong-un visiting Putin in Russia, intention to provide some more material support, which will happen. Uh, but of course, this these aren't in large quantities or, or, in, or in high quality, but of course, it'll be marginally helpful. The question here is if this is maybe a conduit for Russian, or sorry, for Chinese material support to Russia via North Korea. I, I tend to think not, but this could be, and, but then this would also mark a clear deviation of Chinese policy towards, towards the war. And I think at the end of the day, again, a question I get from clients and, and uh, discuss all the time is China's role in the war and their interests and what would be guiding their policy going forward. So one, we've already seen what the policy is. That's been evident. But secondly, China wants to be seen when when you think about China's sort of entrance onto the global stage of, of you know, global diplomacy, where they had been much more reticent in, in the last couple of decades. Since January, Xi Jinping, of course, in February, going to Moscow and proposing his peace plan, which isn't necessarily very real or practical, but nonetheless, sort of a starting point, potentially. China is very interested as they're flexing their diplomatic muscles here in making sure above all, it's not necessarily we're coming in to help Russia. It's above all to show we are not the United States. We are not going to do what the United States did, which is how the rest of the non-Western world views things of starting wars and causing havoc and chaos and, and creating violence uh, around the world. Going back through the Cold War, obviously since the 1990s, war in Iraq, war in Afghanistan. And so China's actually, their diplomatic push here is to say, we're not like the United States. We're coming to bring peace. We're helping, of course, the Saudi and Iranian problems in the Middle East. Now we're actually trying to put our, put our, uh, get involved into a European land war and maybe provide resolution, bring peace to 
a land war in Europe, that would be a remarkable accomplishment. And uh, and again, compare that with how the world, the non-Western world, has perceived United States hegemony over the previous three decades and and the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, et cetera. Uh, so China most definitely wants to sort of be identified with being seen as peacemakers as opposed to necessarily supporting Russia's war in Ukraine and, and prolonging, extending this, this war. And then and you also think of the impact on global south, food inflation and, and the rest. To finish us off, uh, touching upon China-Russia relationship a little bit more, especially with all the talk going on about Taiwan and America's commitments in, to defend Taiwan, to to uh, provide them with war material and things like that. Uh, if tensions rise in, in that area, do you think you would see sort of a... Uh, a forced detachment of China from the United States economically and therefore a deepening of its connections to not only the global south economies, the BRICS economies, but Russia in particular, especially when we're talking about natural resources of which Russia has an abundance. But obviously with the labor market problems, uh, they're, fa- they're having problems with harvesting those. Sure. Um so the quick answer is yes, sure. Uh, Russia's top, or sorry, China's top priorities are, if you look from Beijing's point of view, obviously perpetuation of the the party, which means how do we one keep the economy buzzing along at a decent enough pace to maintain stability within the country, and then bringing back a, a massive win. And this clearly she has in mind for his personal legacy of reuniting Taiwan with with China. And in a similar way, this is sort of irredenta in the way that Putin wanted to have his legacy be the Russian czar who didn't lose Ukraine and kept Ukraine within the fold, didn't allow Ukraine to turn west, et cetera. So similar dynamics here. But the first thing I would say, a little bit aside from your question, is the fact that China most clearly does not want a violent conflict over Taiwan. They, they might be willing to risk it, not today, but in the coming years, uh, but they would not want it. And what they would prefer would be going back to you know the point of view from Moscow. They would like a Belarus situation as opposed to a Ukraine situation. They would love if they could basically you know slowly annex, slowly erode uh, you know in the way that Moscow eroded the sovereignty of, of Belarus and it's just slowly taken Belarus in. They would prefer that situation if they can manage that than do this all-out invasion of Ukraine to to bring it back towards Moscow. China would most definitely prefer to do that. And China's biding its time. China doesn't feel necessarily a sense of, ur- I should say, Xi Jinping's administration, his regime, doesn't feel necessarily an urge of, a sense of urgency. And they they feel that's the Asian world, the China, Chinese world, the Chinese state is on the ascendance and the Western world is on the decline. So conditions will continue to move in our favor in the coming years. And then we can act with the appropriate policy when needed, which is why he's given, Xi, Xi Jinping basically told the military, be ready by 2027. Okay. Now, to the Western world, that means, okay, we have about three to four years until we see some more strong action. But even in 2027 or by 2027, the policy would likely be some form of blockade, right, and and more political meddling uh, and, and pressures. And, of course, what world are we living in? Who's president in the United States? What's happened within governments in in Europe? How strong will the transatlantic unity be? Well, it could be stronger. It could be the same. It could be much weaker. What would the relationship be with all the APEC of the surrounding Southeast Asian governments with the Western world at that time? Where is the Russian state at that time, of course? Is Putin still in office? Is the war still going on? So, so many dynamics here. But to answer your question, yes, China would be happy to to have a 
strong ally as they're pursuing one of their top political objectives in trying to reunite Taiwan with the mainland. Now, that said, we shouldn't overstate sort of the word ally here because we tend to, I would say, incorrectly sort of toss our conception in the Western world of ally onto what could be burgeoning out of the non-Western world or specifically between China and Russia. But this is not the case, and this will never be the case. It is a very values-based right alliance within the Western world. They have a these governments, these countries have similar sort of worldview mindsets and notions of the primacy of the individual and, and human rights, et cetera, et cetera. There, you don't have anything nearly to that extent uh, in in the non-Western world, and specifically between China and Russia, which have been historically enemies. They fought numerous wars when they've had opportunities and every reason in the world to align. Very strongly back in the 50s and 60s, it lasted for only a couple of years. You had massive personal problems between <laughs> between Stalin and Mao, and then Khrushchev and Mao, and then obviously you had many ideological problems and military problems, uh, political problems uh, down the line. So when you take away sort of the anti-Westernism, there isn't much left to these relationships. So I think that's what we would be watching for: how strong will this anti-Westernism be in the coming years? which is going to be determined by the policies of the West and where is the Russian state and Chinese state and the pressure they're putting on Taiwan at that time and how these things will evolve. evolve. It, it just goes to show that when you're studying our region, you got to keep your eye on, on the news, on history, on the global implications. Uh, there's no tearing those things apart. Is there is there anything else that you'd like for us to to highlight? Sure, yeah, thanks. So I can say, uh, actually, the timing of this podcast is, is quite good because I'm in the process of making a pretty big career transition here. So put in my resignation uh, recently from, from my current position. I'm currently managing director of Europe at Frontier View, and I will be moving to Kyiv, Ukraine in the middle of October and starting a company basically to assist with reconstruction and to attract foreign investments back into the country. So we'll be holding quarterly events. Our first quarterly event will be on November 2nd at the uh, Parkovy uh, Center in downtown Kyiv. And anyone on the line who happens to be in Kyiv, more than welcome, of course, to, to come to the event. Well, thank you, Mark, for such an interesting and deep discussion about all these things. And yeah, my pleasure. No, exactly. This is, and this is why I do the job. So many, so many endless things to be considering and looking into, which makes it, of course, fascinating. The Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network. The conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slobxradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. 